As you uh, brothers are making your way back to your seats and you are turning to the last chapter of 2 Thessalonians, um, and this is the, the last um, in the series, we're wrapping up the series that uh, for me has been very encouraging um, and made a big impact in some, some significant ways in uh, my life this fall. I did want to mention the series that we're going to be starting three weeks from today. I've been thinking about this a lot and pitched it to Barton back in November, uh, talked through it. Uh, here's, here's the genesis of this whole thing. Um, I, I'm more and more, I'm seeing, you, you and I are experiencing, certainly in, in the world, and a sense of, okay, where, how do we as a church move forward in the mess that's being made in our culture and everywhere around us? And then even recently, I know we have been overwhelmed by some of the crime and that's taking place in our city and places in our city that are falling apart. Even just this week, brothers, I'm sure you've experienced something similar. I've had three close friends uh, be victims of crime this week. Um, and uh, in, in, you know, in, in here, in our area of, of the city even. And just thinking a lot of times, gosh, I'm overwhelmed. And I know the answer. You and I know the answer. The answer is that we've got to battle together uh, in prayer. That that's, that really is the battle. But it seems that over the last couple, three decades, that, that, that prayer in the church, there just, is, there just seems to be less and less uh, prayer going on uh, in the church. Not that we don't say a prayer when we're in the car or say a prayer before um, amen or say a prayer at our meals. But that, but that call to prayer, but particularly with men, for us to, to gather on a consistent basis and, and really labor in prayer or to, um, uh, to just on our own be men of prayer, that seems to have gotten, you know, we, we seem to have lost that pattern and that power. Now, there's some of you in here who are prayer warriors and are committed to that and committed to that every week. Um, but it, it is the source. It is, the, it is where the battle is, is won. So I thought, gosh, I really want to do a series on prayer, but I don't want it to just be like the, you know, some book on how to pray. Um, I want us to be studying God's word for these things. And so what Barton and I have worked on is putting together a series this coming uh, spring called Prayer, Where the Battle is Won. And we're going to be looking at some of the key prayers and those moments in the Old Testament uh, that God used that to move uh, significantly among his people and in his world. And then we're going to be looking at a few of the prayers of Christ himself and seeing the example that was set there. And then we're going to be looking at some prayers of the early church in the New Testament and wanting for us together not only to study what is it, the, the power that's there, um, but for us to begin to understand what does that mean for us? Like how do we battle that way? You know, any great revival that has, that has ever taken place certainly in the history of the United States, has been preceded by men who have met consistently to battle in prayer. Like you can study it and point back to that moment. So I'm really excited about studying these, uh, these prayers uh, this next semester and seeing how God uses that. As I told you before, as I'm just saying what was said to you uh, by Sandy Wilson, the, you guys in this room are the most important men in Memphis why is that? Is that because of the jobs you have or because of the education you have? No, it's because of the Christ that is in you. You are the most important men in Memphis. Well, well our city's struggling and our nation's struggling and we need, to, we need to do something. And God's word tells us what that is. And I, I want to 
I want to really get into that business uh, next semester. So I'm very excited. January 5th, um, we're going to start that new series. But today, the last, last words, uh, verses 6 through 18 in uh, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And before um, I uh, read the scripture, let's go ahead and look at some of the scripture introduction here so we understand the context. Let's remember the context that we're looking as we read these things. Last week, Barton... Uh, took us uh, to the place where really the, the theme that we've had for First and Second Thessalonians, a faith that stand fir- stands firm, really brought that home um, because Paul writes, as, as Parton said, to hold fast. What does it mean for us to hold fast? And it's interesting. It says the two points were hold fast and pray. That amidst these headwinds of persecution, false teaching, and temptation that come at you as men, that come at your families, that come at our churches, that come at us as people, that we are to hold fast and to pray in the midst of that. And then thinking about the book of 2 Thessalonians, uh, these three chapters, uh, here's, a, here's a quick outline um, that I take from one of my, my fra- favorite scholars uh, to read. He basically says this, that chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians is living through difficult times. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians is waiting for the end times. And chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians is working in the meantime. So living through difficult times, waiting for the end times, working in the meantime. That's the bigger context as we read this. And let me just talk about this problem, diagnosing the problem that we're about to look at. Paul's going to address a specific problem about these people in the church that aren't working, that they're idle. And of course, scholars have been wondering, okay, what, what is that? What, what was happening there? What was going on? Um, some scholars have said, well, what was taking place in that church in Thessalonica is that because they were so excited about the return of Christ and they were sure Christ was coming back like any moment, like within days, within weeks, some in the church said, what's the point of getting a job? What's the point of working? It was almost like they were super spiritual. We're just going to hang out and we're just going to wait for the Lord. That was one thought that that's what was happening. Other scholars would say, no, this, this has to do with something that was very cultural in that uh, time in uh, Greece and in particular in this area, Macedonia. And that was this, this, uh, this patron-dependent um, relationship that very wealthy uh, men uh, often uh, would hire some, some of those really, really in order, they give them a job. The job wasn't much. It was almost like a little bit of a, uh, a welfare. But the idea was, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you to be my guy. So when we deal with stuff politically or we deal with stuff even in the church, hey, the, the, way, I, the way that the guy who's, who's your patron, the way he decides, that's the way you need to decide. It's almost kind of like a... Um, this, this relationship that was meant to you know, carry along people that would help you look good. But the real problem was that these people were doing this, uh, men and women were doing this and saying, gosh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and let this, this, this wealthy guy take care of me and I'll just, you know, whatever he wants, I'll, I'll do that thing. I'm just, I won't have to do very much work. And that's this patron-dependent relationship. Other scholars would say, no, it was just that in Greek culture at that time, uh, menial work was looked down upon. Like you, you weren't really, you really didn't make it if you if you were spending a lot of time working. You weren't really a man of the world if you were if you were spending all these hours working. Uh, so so what is it? Well, at the, at the very bottom of this, brothers, um, an honest scholar would say we don't exactly know which of those three problems it was. 
But I agree with uh, Gordon Fee and D.A. Carson. Um, I, it doesn't make sense. The one that makes the least sense is the one about waiting for Christ's return. And this is why. Because Paul points out in several places, and including the verses we're going to read here, Paul points out, hey, remember we taught you this when we first established you as a church. And so Paul, uh, so Gordon Fee and, and D.A. Carson would say, you know, it doesn't make sense. They hadn't even been taught yet about the return of Christ or got excited about that yet. And already at the very beginning, Paul was having to teach them in the church, hey, some of you need to stop being idle. So most likely, it seems, if you're looking at things, I think, just logically, most likely, this has to do with the cultural uh, issue. This is, this is just the, the, the Christian worldview being placed upon a cultural issue that would have been totally accepted in the Greek culture to either be this patron-client, patron-dependent relationship or uh, just this idea, this Greek philosophy of it's not, you know, you're not cool if you're, if you're working hard, so don't do that. And Paul is taking... God's word and he's placing it upon culture and at this point it's countercultural for those people in Macedonia or in Thessalonica that they would that they would understand hey not everything in your culture is going to fit with Christianity in fact this doesn't and so as we read this um, I think it's important for us to be thinking maybe some of you already thought as I'm saying this what does this have to do with us like, why did I waste my time coming here this morning and getting up this early? Like, we don't have that, we don't have that problem. What, what possibly could we learn from this other than watch what Paul does with it? Now, here's what I think we can learn, and I think it's very important. We're going to see how Paul handles a countercultural issue when it comes to Scripture. And brothers, you and I know there's certain things that are totally acceptable in Memphis, Tennessee to be just, to be good men that actually don't fit with Scripture. Certain things that, that, that we deal with, that come up in the church, that come up in culture, that, that if we're really going to be men who follow Christ, those things that we're going we're to bump up, that we're going to chafe under those things. How does, Paul, how does Paul deal with an issue that exists in the church that's really a cultural issue that doesn't fit with Scripture? How does he do that? We need to know that because we need to know how to be doing that when it comes up in our lives and in our families and in our churches. So with that as our our background, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 6 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Ooh. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The Lord, excuse me, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Couldn't help as I was studying this to think about maybe two ways in which the issue of work and the issue of being a follower of Jesus kind of uh, come in conflict even in our culture right now. I'll give you two examples. And by the way, I'm not thinking of any of you. I don't, I don't have a clue. Um, I'm going to be talking about those of you who have the, the, the gift of being able to retire from your, your, your you know, 40-hour-a-week work, uh, work, okay? And I'm going to be talking to some of you younger men who seem to not be able to make a commitment to anything. That seems to be two things that exist in our culture that could possibly be in conflict with what we need to be as God's men. What do I mean by that? And then we'll dive into these, these points. I mean that, that more and more, those who are under the age of 35 in our world, in, our, in, in America, seem to accept this idea that it's okay to always be looking for that other thing that's going to satisfy me and never really commit to anything. It's honestly why I think the whole issue of marriage has gotten to the point where the average age that someone's married now in America is now over the age of 30. And as I, as I watch uh, young men, what I'm seeing is just this, this fear of committing, fear of putting themselves on the line, fear of saying, hey, I'm going to fulfill this, I'm going to take care of it. It's more this thought that, Oh, I just got to wait until I'm fulfilled. I got to wait until the skies open up. I got to wait until... They do this with jobs. I've shared with you, thankfully, my son uh, now is enjoying the job that he has for three years. But when he was offered this job three years ago, when he didn't have a job and he was looking for a job, and he came home and he told me, yeah, Dad, I, I was offered this job. And I said, well, what's the pay? He told me, it's a good pay. Uh, I said, well, they have... In- oh, yeah, it's insurance and da-da-da. And... Um, I said, great, did you, did you tell him you're going to take it? And he said, no, I'm just going to marinate on it a little bit. I'm thinking, you've been out of work, son, for three months. I don't think there's nothing to marinate on, man. <laughs> I didn't say that, by the way. I know better. I've learned. In my head, actually, I went in the bedroom and said to my wife, he's going to marinate on it? What's there to marinate on? <laughs> you need to work, man. Go do the job, you know? That, that but that's been, that's, that's accepted in our culture as almost as if you're being, and sometimes in the church, almost as if you're being more godly. Oh, I'm just looking for God's will and God's fulfillment. And I'll tell you what God's will is. Be committed to work. I'll tell you what God's will is. Be committed to whatever is in front of you, whatever God puts in front of you. Give yourself fully to that. Now let's go ahead, talk a little bit, meddle a little bit with, with the, 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 the weirdness. Uh, I say weird in the sense that it's only existed in, in America over the last 40 or 50 years, but it doesn't really exist before then, this whole idea of, of retirement in the sense that, hey, at 65, I'm hanging everything up and I'm going to spend the rest of my life going to my beach house, my mountain house, and my golf course. I just know we're in Scripture, brothers. In fact, how wonderful it is for some of us, for some of you, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there yet, and I don't know if I'll ever be there, um, that God has blessed you so that you could actually put aside your 40-hour-a-week job because the Lord has blessed you with resources so that you could pour yourself in to ministry for the next 20, 30, 40 years, as long as God gives you health, as long as you have the strength to do it. 
Um, I tell you what, as I, I agree with John Piper, man, I don't, I don't want to die on a golf course, right? I want to, I want to die doing ministry. I want to die doing work. I want, to, I want to die trying to accomplish something from the Lord that only he could pull off. That's, that's the way. I don't, want it, I don't want it to be, you know, sitting somewhere wondering if this is what it's all about. Okay, with those two thoughts in mind, now let's look at this work thing. You guys are like, man, Todd, you have meddled too much in all this. I might just be getting started. All right, first of all, in verses 6 through 9, the example that we follow and set. So you see in these verses that we have before us that three times, excuse me, two times, Paul talks about imitating us. He says in verse 7, you need to imitate us. And then in verse 9, we've given ourselves as an example that you might imitate us. Paul says this in other letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul goes boldly and just says, listen, I need you to follow me as I follow Christ. So in Paul's mind, he was setting an example. And in this particular case, what he talks about in these verses is Paul says, listen, we weren't idle, but we worked. Now, it was Paul's habit that when he was planning, or, or pattern, his strategy, when he was planning a church, he had no problem accepting resources from a church that he had planted before and was established, helping him plant another church over here. But his pattern and strategy was, I'm not going to accept money from the people in the place where I am planting the church. And the reason I think Paul didn't want to do this is because in the culture of those days, being a good speaker, being a good leader, often there was this sense of, oh, we're going to pay you to be our kind of you know, philosopher. And Paul wanted to say, no, no, I'm not doing this like the Greeks do this. I'm planting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm planting a church among you, I'm not going to take any money from you. Now, it's, again, you can see he actually, he actually does use resources and is thankful for the resources that come from other churches to help him plant this church. But he says, listen, if, if we run out of money, I'm just going to go ahead and do some tent making work while I'm here. Because I, I want to set an example to you. I don't, I don't want there to be any hindrance to the gospel um, by me taking money from you. Now, Paul says, though, we have a right to, and he actually argues that in Scripture, that those who minister full time, those who minister full time among you, deserve the resources to take care of their daily needs. He makes that argument. But he says, listen, when I do this in this place, I've decided not to do that when I'm planting a church because I want to set myself as an example. I think he also, in this particular church, wanted to set that example because the people he was working with, he was noticing there was a whole group of them that just weren't working. And he's thinking, this isn't good. So I need to make sure I set an example. I don't look like them because it's, that's not the way they need to follow Jesus. And so he was very mindful. Paul was very mindful of the example he set because he expected to be followed. It was in his, he was thinking, I want you to follow my way of life. So he was very thoughtful about the example that he was setting. Brothers, our example needs to begin with that mindfulness. I think we need to have the exact same mindset that Paul had when it comes to, and again, whether you're in this room and you're 10 years old or you're, 25 years old, or you're 35, or you're 75, or you're 85. I think we as men need to be mindful of the example that we should be setting. Because we should be setting an example. We should be expecting other men and women to look at our lives 
to listen to what comes out of our mouth and to truly think in our heads, hey, please follow me as I follow Christ. I think that's what we're called to do and to be mindful of that. You know, I think I shared with you uh, before that years ago when my daughter, my youngest uh, child is, she's now 25 years old, but when she was, I think it was 12 or 13 that I had asked her, um, I said, hey, would you, on a Sunday afternoon, I said, hey, would you go ahead and make a, a list of, the, of dad's top five priorities in his, you know, I said, not what I say out of my mouth, but what I, you know, actually what my, they really are, like how I live <laughs> uh, and in regards to you, Ellie. And I was trying to explain it. Ellie's like, dad, I got this. So she goes away about 30 minutes later. She comes in, she hands me a piece of paper and say, here, here you go, dad. And then she walks off. <laughs> So I'm looking at my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter. These are, these are dad's top five priorities in relationship to me. Well, praise the Lord, as you heard me say before, praise the Lord, at least one thing spiritual appeared on there. That's, I was, whew. Sadly, it was number four. Now I'm going to tell you, she got the priorities right. It was very convicting. She nailed it. I've never shared what number one was, but I'm going to share it now. Number one She was saying, Dad's demonstrated example in our home life is that his top priority is what I do in school, is what Ellie does in school. Number four was spiritual. That's messed up, brothers. That's messed up. That's not the way I should should, uh, be setting the example as a father. But she was right because clearly I gave a whole lot more effort, energy, time, everything to being concerned about what she was doing in school than I was being concerned about her walk with Jesus. And that was a convicting moment for me. And I had to realize, you know, I got to change some things. I got to change some way I'm spending the efforts and time and energy that I'm putting into things. That's got to switch because that list is accurate and it's not, and it, and it's not me setting an example that I ought to set for my daughter and my family. And I had to think about that. You know, years ago, there was this, uh, I think we've talked about this before, there was this very significant study done over three years um, by two professors out of the University of North Carolina and Duke University on the spiritual lives of American teenagers because there was a concern that all, the, that all these teenagers were leaving the faith. They were leaving Christianity. So these two professors were going to go and study why is that happening? Why are so many uh, teenagers leaving the Christian faith. And that was their, their approach. So they went and did all this study for three years. They, they found something interesting. None of these teenagers thought that they were leaving the faith of their parents. They actually thought that they were embracing the faith of their parents. And it was a few years later that Kenda Creasy Dean, one of my favorite Uh, Christian professors out of Princeton Seminary wrote a book called Almost Christian, which was a reflection on the the data from that three-year study. And on page seven of that uh, book, I was arrested by this quote. She said this, Since the lives and choices of American teenagers reflect with astonishing clarity the lives and choices of the adults who love them, Lackadaisical faith is not a young people's problem, but ours. The data showed that teenagers were embracing the faith of their parents, 
But the faith of us as parents was pretty lackadaisical. They were embracing the patterns of commitment to worship that they saw in their parents, which wasn't much. They were embracing the the priority of, of Bible reading and prayer of their parents, which wasn't much. They were truly following the example that was being that was being set for them. Paul over and over again encourages uh, his the, the believers around him. Sorry, the believers around him to go ahead. Should have shaved this morning. Uh, the believers around him to uh, to go ahead and follow him as he followed Christ. He even tells Timothy. Remember, he says in Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter First Timothy, chapter four. He says, "Don't let anybody look down on you just because you're young." Just because you're younger than everybody in your church. Don't let them look down on you. But he said, but set the believers an example. Set the believers an example that they may follow you. Set the believers an example. He goes on to say, in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your purity. Let them follow your life. So brothers, we've got to set that example. We have to be mindful of that. If, If we're going to truly deal with all the cultural issues that are going on and, and all the battle that's going on, spiritual battles that are going on in our cities, in our homes, in our churches, we need to start not with the words that we say, but the example of our lives. We need to be mindful of that, and we truly want to look around and say, hey, hey follow, you can follow me. Not always going to be perfect, but I'm going to be committed to setting an example that, that any young man in this church Anybody younger than me can follow. And you young men, as like, like was said to Timothy, don't let the older men look down at you because you're young. You set the example. You set the example in your church. And in your mind, say, okay, older men, follow me as I follow Christ. The example that we set and follow. Secondly, we see in this, in this passage the teaching we should receive and obey. The teaching we should receive and obey. Paul mentions four things in regards to the biblical action to this issue. So he's looking at a per- certain issue in the church, and he's saying, okay, how do we apply Scripture? How do we, what do we do with this? How do we go about this? And those four things are there in your notes. The commands, the encouragement, the discipline, and the restoration. So the commands. Paul, remember, is an apostle. So he's speaking, and he says this. He says at the very beginning, verse 6, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was careful by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he does this in Corinthians, to separate uh, what he might urge people to do as opposed to what he might command people to. He was to separate his own opinion on some things, because in 1 Corinthians he says, well, this might be my opinion, might be the best thing to do. But then some things, he's like, no, this is a command. This is coming from the Lord. And so what he's saying here is, I'm going to use my apostolic authority in the Lord Jesus Christ I'm commanding you, you've got to do this. This is, and now, of course, it's in the Word of God. I'm commanding you, you cannot be idle. And then in, in Paul's wonderful way, I think sometimes it's why it's fun to read Paul, unless it's convicting us, but we like when it's convicting others. In verse, in verse 11, you know, there's a little bite to Paul's words. Uh, some of you are busy, are not busy, but you're busy bodies. And isn't that true? I mean, I'm telling you, we were created to work. The, there was... God gave us work in the Garden of Eden before the fall. The work is not a result of sin and the fall. The fact that work is hard is a result of sin and fall. 
But we're going to work in heaven. We were created to work. That's why when men and women choose just not to work at whatever stage of their lives, a lot of things start to unravel. Because we weren't designed to just sit around. We were designed to be building, to be, to be working. So when that happens, we end up being, we got to work on something, so we start meddling. That's what busybody. So we start meddling in stuff. And that happens, you know, we see it all over the place. And, you know, when, when you're idle, you just start, you just start meddling in things you, sh- you shouldn't meddle in. <laughs> um, I think about this most when, uh, years ago when I was doing youth ministry in our offices over there right next to the, to the recreation offices. And you'd be, be about, about now when you're putting together basketball teams and stuff like that. And, and uh, man, you'd have some, you'd have some dear, dear sweet Dear sweet moms who love their kids but just have way too much time on their hand. Way too much time on their hand. Enough time that they're coming down and they're all concerned about you know, what, what team their kid's on and why that, they can't be on that team because they need to be with this friend because their whole life's going to fall apart. These are like six-year-olds. Their whole lives are going to fall apart if they're on this team instead of that team. You know, and they're giving, it, giving the recreation director you know, down the river about you've ruined their lives and this needs to be like this and you know, blah, you know, all this and um, and I used to think, I used to think, you know, the, the inner city mom, she just doesn't have time to worry about what basketball team her kid's on because she's working. And the idleness has caused these well-meaning moms to meddle in something that honestly just doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't think any of us were sunk in life because we were put on the wrong basketball team at age six. <laughs> When we're not busy, we end up being busy bodies. The command there that we've got to listen to. So when Scripture comes to us, we need to not just be reading and studying God's Word, which we do here. We can't just read and study on Thursday mornings. We actually have it, need to have it affect our lives. In fact, it's extremely dangerous for this city if the men who come here consistently for decades aren't transformed by the Word that they study. Extremely dangerous for this city. If, if we're coming in here and talking about how we always study God's Word at 6.30 in the morning on Thursday, 6.30 on Thursday mornings, and then we don't set an example out there that looks like a transformed life, we, we first will confuse unbelievers or we'll confuse young believers. And, and worse, they will begin to resent Christianity. They will begin to resent the church because they see us and go, yeah, you talk a lot about how you study God's Word, but I don't see you living God's Word. So these commands are things that we can't just study, but we need to obey. And then Paul turns to encouragement in verses 11 and 12, and this is important. So there are commands, there are some things, hey, you need to do this. But then Paul also talks about how to encourage people, how to build them up when they're doing the right thing. So he says, I need you to encourage these idle people to go ahead and work quietly. By working quietly, it just means this, stop meddling. <laughs> go ahead and do your work and stop meddling. Help them get a job. Help them move into that. Encourage them that. If you see them doing it, say, good job, man. Way to take those steps. Way to do that. You know, when, when, when Zach came to me and said, hey, I'm going to marinate on this a little bit, I'd, I'd, you know, I went into my, my room and fussed at Lynn and we prayed and I didn't say anything. I was, I was, I'm, I'm learning how to be a dad of adult children. And, uh, but, you know, as soon as he said, hey, I've decided to take the job, like two days later, um, I didn't say, well, pff, thank goodness, you idiot. You know, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, 
Man, that's awesome. Really proud of you. Encouragement. We need that. We need that from brothers. We need to be encouraging each other. When, when, when we, when, let's catch each other doing stuff right. And let's go ahead and build each other up. Paul is saying, let's do that. When you see it done right, build each other up in the Word. When you see somebody following the Word, doing, making a tough decision, making any decision that's a response to God's Word, and let's say it out loud and encourage each other and thank them for being that example. And then Paul turns to discipline. He's mentioned it early. Verse 6, he mentions the discipline when he says, you keep away from a brother who's walking in idleness. And then he really brings it home in verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he might be ashamed. Paul's saying, you need to take this seriously. You don't just look at it, talk behind their backs and say, man, that guy's... That guy probably should be doing differently. It says, no, what you do as brothers in Christ is you go to them, you make it clear to them the command, you try to encourage them, but if they're not going to do this, then you know what? You need to go ahead and deal with them in such a way that they become aware of it. Now, I know in our culture right now that they become ashamed. That seems terrible. We don't sh- it, wasn't, it wasn't to shame them, but it was to make them aware that they ought to be ashamed. Listen, I can't hang out with you when you're doing that as we try to walk with Christ. If you're going to do that, I can't be there with you. If that's what's going to happen at the party, I think I need to stay here. Not because you're self-righteous, but because you're making it clear that's not how we walk as brothers in Christ. And I, I, we, I can't be a party with you in that. You're going to have to do that alone, even as you're pleading with them. And you think, well, I guess they're going to feel uncomfortable if I say that. If I bring up what we ought not to be doing, it's going to be awkward. They're going to feel ashamed. Paul is saying, yes, it's a good thing. It's a good thing sometimes to be ashamed of what we're doing. Because we ought to be ashamed of what we're doing. When we're sinning against God, it's a good thing to go, oh, I need to cover up. I need to hide. This, this is wrong. And helping a brother understand that, helping a sister understand that is important. You know, there's this thing, my, my wife, Lynn, is a, she's been a teacher um, of uh, pre-kindergarten for almost 20 years now. She says there's this new thing that's going on in parenting. It's literally, it's, this is for real, you can look it up. It's called gentle parenting. Um, it's a bunch of baloney, but it's called gentle parenting. And the whole idea is that instead of, you can't even put kids in time out anymore in gentle parenting. Let alone not, you can't, you can't spank them for sure, but you can't even put, and the whole idea is that you're supposed to reason with the child. If you reason with the child, they'll, you know, you give, you give them the right choices, you give them the right, that's all going to work out. It's not working out, Lynn says. <laughs> it's not, like, she says the classes are becoming more and more chaotic because these parents are trying to reason with a four-year-old who is, according to Scripture, born a sinner. <laughs> and it's, it's not Sometimes I think we are sadly applying that even as we walk together as brothers in the church. It's like we're doing gentle brothering. I don't want to offend him too much. I don't want to say, hey, we probably shouldn't do that. I don't want to get up in his business. Let me just tell you about me. Please get up in my business, brothers. Please. If you see me ever um, mistreating my wife, If you have a concern about the way I speak to my wife and you see it, please come. Please come ask me about it. If you see me in a place I shouldn't be, if you see me uh, 
interacting in a way I shouldn't interact, please come challenge me on it. If I speak a word from here or my Sunday school class or on Sunday morning, and you're like, man, that's, something's off, please come ask me about it. Because like the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I want to follow Jesus, but I know my sinful heart. And sometimes I do this. Please come get me. Please. Please risk our friendship and kindness to come after me and say, Todd, I'm here to bring you back. Please do that. I'm counting on you doing that. My wife is counting on you doing that. My family, my church is counting on you doing that. It's important. And if it's tough, hang in there with me. And do the discipline that I need. It's important for my spiritual faith. It's important for this whole church. And then finally, restoration. The fourth word, restoration. I love what Paul says in verse 15. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the point of discipline is this. And this is beautiful. Discipline in the church. In fact, God's discipline of his people in Scripture is always meant to be restorative, not punitive. Especially since after the cross. Christ has already paid for your sins, brother. You, you, you can't pay for it. So when God disciplines you, the discipline is intended to bring you back, not to make you pay. You never could pay. He's trying to draw you back in. And he says in the same way, when we have discipline with each other, when we approach each other, let's do it for the sake of bringing each other back. When you say to me and confront me and say, Todd, I can't be with you in that, and I'm really concerned about you, and you know what, I don't know if we can... I'm not going to pretend like this doesn't exist. And I can't just have a casual conversation with you, Todd, until we deal with this. I'm like, well, that's weird. You're pulling away from me as a friend. No, you're not. You're treating me as a brother. You're not regarding me as an enemy. You're trying to say, come on, man. Get back. Come back. And that's what it means to, to, to minister discipline in the church. It's, it's a, it's, you're seeking restoration. It's a beautiful thing to have happen. Commands, encouragement, discipline, restoration, the word we should receive, the teaching we should receive and obey. And finally, this morning, the peace in which we live and we find our rest. I, I just love how Paul is always wrapping everything up in the peace of Christ. You know, you'll notice that, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 begins, grace and peace to you. And then as he wraps up second, uh, 1 Thessalonians he says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And here, as he wraps things up, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. And notice in verse 5, excuse me, verse 23 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and here in, chapter, in verse 16, he says that God... The God or Lord of peace himself. Peace is not what Christ gives us. It's what we, uh, what we experience in Christ. Christ is our peace. Peace is not just the absence of warfare, the absence of conflict. That's not what Christ is offering in biblical peace. What he's offering is himself. He is our peace 
And how does that work? How do we, how do we experience peace when we are in Christ? It's this, brothers, that you and I are absolutely secure in this life. Nothing can happen to us that is not in the hands of our God who is peace himself. Nothing. And not only that, your future is secure. So you truly are untouchable. That's what it means to experience peace. That's why you could be sitting in the middle of Ukraine right now. And you could know supernatural peace not because you're going to have this weird you know spiritual eclectic moment i just feel peace it's like no i know that i am in the hands of god and i am untouchable i will not die a second before he ordains it and i will not live any longer a second than he ordains it my times are in his hands it says in the psalms and not only that my future is secure nothing nothing can ruin my retirement plan my retirement plan is heaven. It's not the golf course. It's not the beach house. It's heaven. Nothing can touch it. It's untouchable. That'll bring you peace. And that is only in Christ himself. That is what is peace. And now receiving the peace. That he is our rest. He himself. I'm not, I'm not just looking to God and say, can you fix this? Can you solve this? Con-? I can pray that. Lord, please, please deal with this conflict. Please Please bring peace to our city. Please stop the crime. Those are important prayers. But even amidst that, I can receive peace because I have Christ himself, because you have Christ himself, that he is your rest. And in the midst of this craziness, as we're talking about peace and we're reading about peace, you know, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, the government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. We saying, Hark the herald angels sing. What did the angels say? Glory be to God in the highest and peace on earth. What is the peace? It's Christ to receive Him. I know some of us are wishing everything would get calm the next two weeks. It's not going to (laughs) be. That's okay. You are secure in Christ. And your future is guaranteed. Nothing can touch it. So amidst the craziness, you can experience the peace of Christ. Brothers, as we close this time, I'd ask you to stand because I want to pronounce the benediction that Paul pronounces uh, for these Thessalonians. Standing firm in our faith. Brothers, let's stand firm in our faith. Let's not be shaken. Don't weaken. Don't weaken. Now receive what Paul writes. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely so that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Amen. Thank you, brothers.